Welcome to the Ask Why podcast, a series of conversations exploring the future of learning and the future of work with experts ranging from professional educators to investors, company builders, and individual learners. The way we learn and the way we work is changing rapidly. Artificial intelligence is automating ever more tasks around us, putting pressure on all of us to rescale and upscale at accelerated rates while dealing with a level of unprecedented information overload. The education system, built for an age of information scarcity and around a broadcast model of teachers and learners, is simply no longer fit for purpose. But what can be put in its place? If this is a topic you're interested in, I invite you to subscribe to our podcast by searching for hashtag AskWhy in your favorite podcast app or follow us on YouTube or TikTok and catch the video feed of these conversations, which are happening in VR. Today's guest is Caitlin Donnelly. Caitlin and I met in New York a bit over a year ago. She started her career as an analyst at McKinsey before setting up Pearson Ventures. Today, she's the managing director at Avalanche VC, focusing on startups that transform the way people learn, earn, and own. Um, first of all, thanks for thanks for even taking taking the chat, taking the time to to talk. It's, uh, I'm I'm really looking forward to it. You have a pretty interesting trajectory to date of course managing director at avalanche which is probably the biggest part of the the conversation today in terms of um everything we want to look at there do you want to provide some context on the chief of staff to co-founder pearson ventures sure well um maybe Hmm. one of the things that ties it all together is when i so i was at mckinsey for three years and my third year i uh, saw this project on the pipeline to work with Sir Michael Barber to do a big reform program of the education system in Pakistan. And so I thought that project would be two months and I'd come back to San Francisco and work in tech. And I ended up staying for eight and living in, in Lahore. And meanwhile, uh, Michael Barber had uh, been appointed chief education advisor at Pearson and, and asked if I'd be his chief of staff. So I left McKinsey uh, and joined Michael as his his first employee at Pearson and I was Michael Barber's chief of staff for um, like a year and a half, helping him set up the office, uh, begin to define his areas within Pearson. One of them was defining Pearson's efficacy strategy, so how they measure learning outcomes across their suite of products and services. And then the second wa- uh, was uh, building a venture fund that would be able to work with companies that were both building efficacy into their products and services from the ground up and able to derive uh, drive financial returns. Um, so Michael and I were co-founders of that fund and I was the managing director and he was the chair. And uh, and then the one thing that you, you, you missed in my bio was that M- Michael and I and a couple other people co-founded a company called Delivery Associates that works with governments to drive big reform programs. And... Um, and we we built that over the last 10 years and recently partnered with a private equity company and and I rolled off the the board and the team to to focus on Avalanche full time full time. Oh nice. Okay. Well, that's a big step then. <laughs> big new yeah. new focus. Oh, I mean, you've had the focus before, but I guess an extra focus on Avalanche now. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's more like I'm able to kind of tie a bow on my chapter of consulting and and being a, you know, an operator of a primarily professional services firm to really focus on um, you know, early stage startups and founders that are more product oriented. Yeah. Um. Cool. So I um, 
I did think so before we we start with the questions I um obviously there's been a, a lot of stuff around AI in the last month month and a half so I thought um just to make it uh, a little bit interesting uh, one of the questions that I prepared has been uh, entirely written by ChatGPT and at the, oh, cool. the at, at the end of the interview I will ask you if you think you can identify which one of the questions was ChatGPT instead of it's oh, me, okay. if that makes sense. <laughs> cool. And they are, these aren't the ones you've already sent me. This is a new one, I guess. Uh, no, uh, actually, I wonder, I think, no, the question, the ones that I have sent you were not, uh, which narrows it down already. See, you're already trying to game it. <laughs> but, uh, but yes, so there's, uh, I haven't sent you this question yet. Cool. Uh, so the, the questions I... I would like to start with, and I'm actually going to start with this question for everyone really to to talk to, is um, really starting with what is one belief or one thing you think is true that most in your field, in your industry, would disagree with? Okay, yeah, I thought about this, my answer to this. I always struggle with this, these questions because... Things are really obvious to me, and I assume that other people believe them. And so it's hard to kind of, you know, you're both trying to have self-awareness and then awareness of other people. But when prepping for the interview, I thought that I'd answer this question with, I don't think that companies that resemble schools are venture-backable businesses. So like boot camps, for example, or like new models of schooling, I I think that like there is a place. For, I think they should exist. I think they should be funded, but I do not think that they are venture backable technology businesses. Interesting. And and how far would you take that? Like, are you thinking about? Is it the model of physical space? Is it the model of kind of broadcast type um, learning? A uh, is is it something else? Like, what? How would you? What would you say are those core components that are not uh, venture back? Like what's a school? Yeah, exactly. I, I think it's like, um, so the reason I think the, what I mean are schools are not venture backable is that a school or like a set of curriculum is usually promising a certain type of student an outcome at the end, right? So like if I go into, if I want to be an architect and I get like a master's in architecture, there's usually prerequisites to... For that right so there's so that means that only only a certain number of people would be like truly qualified to go through the master's in architecture program to then be like a intermediate or advanced architect at the end and so <clears throat> that means that like there are negative economies to scale because almost every additional student that you have is probably less of a good fit for that particular program once you go through a particular threshold because they might just like have not made the prerequisites. They might not be like as focused or like interested in the program. And so the first time you do you like you are able to kind of get that cohort, you can get an amazing group of people. But then the second cohort, or if you try to expand that cohort from like 20 students to like 200 students to 2000 students to 20,000 students, it just doesn't work because people aren't commodities in their learning journeys. Interesting, yeah. So it's like user acquisition doesn't scale in the in the same way, basically. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Income. Yeah. But we can all use Oculus and like be in this workspace, like every single human can, right? But not every single 
human is qualified to go through like a particular schooling program if they're doing it right that makes a lot of sense okay thanks um and then the the second question was um out of all the various learning experiences that you have gone through so including schooling as well as um say on the job training things like that what would you say was the the standard or the best learning experience that you have personally gone through and and why was it that there are so many things i could answer in this question because i think you know one of the reasons i've had the career journey that i've had is that i'm a voracious learner and always like to do new things and hate being bored um but the one I was going to talk about was actually uh, in university. I my senior year, I was the president of the student union, and before that, I so I majored in economics and I had my summer internship between junior and senior year at Morgan Stanley, and so I thought I was going to do sales and trading. And then my senior year, I um, was the president of the Duke University Union, which was a the largest um, by budget value student organization on campus. And it was responsible for things like the coffee house, the radio station, the TV channel, um, putting on big concerts and events. And um, I was I, I was the CEO and I was able to restructure it and kind of like have all these people report to me. And so that made me think about being an operator and a leader instead of just an investor. And it was there that I like to say I made my first um, like angel investment or acquisition. So I one of the students um like or you know one of my one of my fellow students started a recording studio on campus and i um like recruited it or acquired it to be part of the student union and we started the first student record record label oh wow and so i think you know at a young age being able to like have a real i mean a, sim, a, a both a real but like a sim, simulation of a role that then you know i could see myself in um over time was really impactful for me all right yeah i can imagine that must have been a really interesting experience yeah cool um so now we'll we'll get into um some of the questions that i haven't uh that i that i didn't oh send over before and so the um i'd love to spend a little bit more time talking about the the piece you you have uh you you wrote or whatever your thoughts are around alternative education really um, and before we do that can i ask you how you would define uh, alternative education so this is actually close to what we we're saying before the schooling system so maybe the the answer is basically the opposite of what you said before but like just for the 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 interest of everybody that will be listening to this like how would you define alternative education so the way it is defined out in the world is anything that is opposite of the mainstream education system, which would be your traditional state, K, you know, K through um, 12, or, or I guess in the UK, you'd say primary and secondary school um, <clears throat> system, and then I think traditional four-year university program. So that alternative education examples include homeschooling, religious schooling, tutoring, um, charter schools, um, 
any sort of like private school really so in the uk you might like consider the arc schools to be alternative education perfect and um so what were the key observations or what made you what made you interested in particularly that space over everything else in in learning right now what were the key observations that made you think that that's where where the future lies well one of the things we look for at, at avalanche is these inflection points and so alternative education and um homeschooling hasn't has been around for a, a long time you know sort of like tail as old as time and i think the question is what is going to create that inflection point to be to make it go mainstream and i think what we've seen over the last couple of years and it is an acceleration of parents being frustrated by the like politicalization of the public school systems and teachers as well being be like leaving and getting frustrated like so for example in the u.s <clears throat> the teaching contracts driven by the unions are still so traditional in terms of you're on this 30-year career and we pay you a little bit more each year and then you get the tenure system and after three years if you get tenure you basically are unfireable um and, and you don't get paid that much but you have this like for life pension once you do your time and that social contract for labor just doesn't work anymore like i think the younger teachers don't believe that they can lead the life that is uh workable for them under under that um teaching contract and then what they're being asked to do in the classroom is deviating more and more from um teaching and learning than um than it was in the past and that's because, at least in the U.S., there's so much of the social support systems that are we've thrown into the traditional school system. So, like, in New York, pu public schools, during COVID, one of the things we realized was that the public school system here is a school lunch program. So, the only meal, there's like 100,000 kids in, in New York City where potentially the only meal... That they're going to get to for the day is the school lunch that they get and so um <clears throat> the public school system is doing a lot more than just like than just schooling and i think that what that means is for parents that are expecting excellence or they're expecting a high level of performance from the school system they need they need to are looking for like more alternative options so that they they can get a good return on the investment of their child's time in the classroom. Okay. Now, are there particular parts of alternative education that you're more excited about than others? Well, as an investor, I'm more excited about the the platforms and the tool, the tooling that can enable a ecosystem where parents and students get a lot of choice and where you can personalize education experiences to a student and um, offer them the best experience for what their goals are and, and what they want to learn. Um, th that's what's most interesting to me. And long term, how do you how do you see this evolve? Do you see 
these systems, kind of the, the system of, of kind of traditional education sitting alongside um, a, a choice of different alternative education? Do you eventually see these various options overtaking the traditional system entirely? How think about this? I don't think, at least immediately, the public system is is going away because it is that sort of safety net or that it's, it should be a high floor or like a high bar. But it's hard to see with our institutional dysfunction in so many places that you're not going to chip away at that school system. So the data just came out, I think, early, like early last week, that school districts across America, public school districts, have seen unprecedented drops of enrollment. And a lot of the funding... <clears throat> for public schools comes on a per pupil basis. So the schools are going to just have less resources, um, you know, and slowly that's going to be, that's going to move to alternative providers. And that might happen, you know, we think it's going to happen faster than many, than, than many people realize right now. Yeah. And when you say faster than many people realize, like how, do you have any any idea of quantification around this? Like, do you, how big of a market do you think is is being created here? Um, how, how do you think about the speed and the opportunity that that this creates? I think we you look at in the U.S. at U.S. what what state policies are, and so what we've seen is at least seven states in this past year adopt education savings accounts or like voucher programs for funding to go to direct to pupil. And so Arizona is, was one of the earliest adopters of this and um, I think had, had a very big and successful voucher program launched this year. I know that Idaho also launched like a, a direct to parent subsidy program. I believe West Virginia had one and then it was like disputed by the courts. Florida has had one for a while. And so I think you see the proliferation of these programs and you see the legislation moving through state legislators. And so the more that that happens, um, the the bigger the market gets for alternative providers. I think the other thing, and then I would, so that's like the top down from the government coming to like to, to the parents from the bottom up. I think you're seeing a lot of um, particularly wealthy or minority parents that are just buying out of pocket uh, supplemental education or alternatives and like that direct to consumer education market is getting bigger and bigger so for example uh, the way this uh, we see this impacting investments is one of the first investments in avalanche was a company called prisms of reality which is a math curriculum using virtual reality which of course is <laughs> is a, is uh, very pertinent to what we're doing today and um, they, I think, have over 100,000 student licenses that they sold um, in the past two years, and they're in 32 states. And then they are launching on the um, Oculus MetaQuest store direct-to-consumer in a couple of weeks. So you're seeing curriculum that pr traditionally you'd only get in a traditional classroom that now you can access at home. Or you can access for your pod, your micro school or your pod. And I think that like prisms of reality is just the first to market. And, you know, they want to have a whole library that covers this, like all the different math components and maybe science and engineering. And so then 
that that is going to open up people's imagination to what um what a, a more alternative future could look like to be able to personalize the the experience for an individual student cool yeah that that makes makes a lot of sense and uh, you you touched on these um the education savings accounts uh which you also mentioned in your in the article that you wrote um I found that a really interesting concept for some weird reason hadn't actually properly come across uh, across it before. Can you explain a little bit more what they are about and why you think they're such a big thing? Yeah, so they're basically like a government saying to a parent, here is, you know, there's, the devil is in the details on all these programs. There are... Um, like a ton of rules and definitions and, and, you know, like special ed kids might get more or different grade levels get more or less. So let's just like, but like a simple example is if you had have a first grader, the government of Arizona might say, here's $5,000 for you to be able to use for, to, to purchase education options from these accredited providers. And you can choose um, from this list about how you spend that. So if that is choosing between three different um, kindergarten programs that are in your city, or maybe it's, you know, buying some prisms of reality math curriculum or um, having this special like learning, uh, reading, reading, learning app that's available on the on the Apple store. Uh, the government will put, put that money in your wallet and then you can choose to uh, direct that to where you see fit. It's very interesting. What uh, imagine this gave gives more agency to the individual to the consumer directly to mm -hmm. to direct the funds that the way they want them to be directed rather than it kind of coming from a a school system i guess um, yeah and that's where you're saying that that's the part that leads to a stronger consumer or at least part of the trend that kind of leads to a stronger consumer market because those funds are are getting directed by the people directly rather than by institutions and governments yeah. I think it gets to like the notion of, I mean, one of the things I think our society hasn't yet come to terms with is that the school system used to act in loco parentis, like in the place of parents, right? They're like, okay, so every student is mandated to go to this public school system and, and we're going to make sure that everyone like learns to read and, and learns mathematics and, and so that there's some sort of standardization. And because school systems have for whatever, for a whole wide variety of reasons, like failed to deliver on those promises, we're now, um, you know, giving the decision making back to parents. And and one of the things that we haven't yet like come to a solution for is for is for students or young people whose parents are not able for whatever reason to to act in the role of making those cho appropriate choices for their kids like how do you still ensure that every child is able to read and has an access to high quality of education yeah that's a very very interesting developments and so we, we talked a lot about kind of the the general school system here and and i guess it was more kind of a focus on um on the on the younger younger years is there when you think about alternative education how do you think about this more in a in a workforce environment uh is that even a thing like yeah how do you think through that i think it's huge i think it's sort of the biggest one of the biggest things because 
in the U.S., and I think the the U.K. is similar. Over the last you know twenty years, has been the proliferation of these like super expensive master's degrees programs that are often like you leave the job, you go to a, do your master's for two years, you come back, and you believe that you're going to get this higher salary. And what we now know in the workplace and in our lives is that the pace of technological development is happening so fast, and so much of of um, the skills and the tools that you need to learn are embedded in the jobs. So you can't, like, it doesn't make sense to just leave the workforce for two years and then come back to it. And instead, you have to almost think that, like, if I'm going to be an, an, an effective um, employee or freelancer or, like, adding value to um, to my industry, I need to probably spend at least 20% of my time um, upgrading myself on uh, the trends, the tools, um, the, the networks and relationships that are going to help me stay competitive and at the cutting edge because it's really easy to like fall behind. Yeah. Very interesting. And right now, I mean, historically speaking, this has been often in the realm of the employer providing or at least it, it was, yeah, the, the employer providing various programs or the employee having to basically stop um, for a year or two right. getting the degree and coming back. How do you see, how do you see this space change? If you have to spend 20% of your time or whatever percentage of your time kind of to stay up to date with what is coming through while you're in work, what are the types of learning environments that would be appropriate for that? Well, I think uh, continuous education is really important. So one of the, the trends in for adult learning is that everyone, we have this theme at Avalanche called everyone is an entrepreneur um, and or like the rise of the freelancer is I just think you see much more like contract um, labor or people who are, um, you know, using their skills to and basically have maybe a couple different clients or a couple different companies that they're working for at the same time or if they are employed by a company it might be um it's it's less time than it was before right like the average uh tenure for a job 20 years ago was 10 years and now it's like three years and it's it's like decreasing every year right like people don't expect to be in the job for their whole be at the same employer for their whole career um and so that means that they need to be either investing themselves in constantly upskilling themselves so that they can demonstrate that they have these skills uh, to their employers or the people that they are um, contracting their, their like lending out their talent to, um, or employers, if they really want to keep the same workforce, are going to need to be able to use learning and development and progression in the seat as a way of motivating and retaining talent. And have you seen any any companies or any approaches that have have made significant headway in this kind of compared to just the another LMS somewhere that a company puts in front of the workforce? Like anything that you're particularly excited by in this space that that is making a difference? 
I think there's some companies like we've invested in a company called Curious in um, in Latin America, but I think they're very similar model to Reforge in the U.S. Where basically like it, it it's a B it's a B two B model. They sell to a, an employer to help digitally upskill existing staff. So like take the, helping them be product managers or digital marketing managers, and the instructors are people who've worked at technology, like fast growing technology startups in those roles. And the curriculum is is, is really like tailored to help people be successful in the, the job that they're currently at with um, the uh, new sort of like skill set. I think the other thing that we've seen be really successful is the best in class SaaS products or like workplace tools have embedded education. So you take Figma, for example, the design software, and built into Figma are a set of modules about how to use the tool to be a better collaborative designer. So you're learning design with learning the tool with, and and Figma is a multiplayer design tool, right? So um, you're probably doing it, you know, building the designs with other team members and, and that, peer group helps reinforce your your learning yeah that makes makes a lot of sense um i i sometimes it's like you see people like in in job interviews or when you talk to people and they're like um if it's a designer and they talk about using like for me it's like adobe and they're like figma never heard of figma you're like "Uh uh-oh like this isn't gonna work out you know (laughs) yeah if you haven't heard of it's almost that starts (laughs) yeah True. You're very, very true. <laughs> um, so interesting, I guess, half segue, segue at least in my head, um, because I've been in, in the, uh, thinking about AI quite a bit in the last few months. And one of the one of the projects I looked at was um, automated Figma design creation based on on text prompts, which were which is interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, have Figma plugins that take text prompts in order to create. Um, uh, create designs uh, to start with basically going over the whatever the first creation bit is it's like the page problem for designers basically yeah uh, so I mean that's just one example but uh, um, I imagine you've been following all the stuff around ChatGPT, mid-journey all of the the things that have kind of been, yeah. been coming out like um, first of uh were you expecting this? So, like, if a month and a half ago I would have asked you this question, like, would you would you have thought this was coming? Um, and then, second, like, how do you has your thinking changed in the last month, and how you think about artificial intelligence in learning through a practical lens of like twenty twenty three and twenty twenty four, not like twenty thirty. Uh, I say no. I, I, it's funny because I, I wrote this blog in 2020 when the last iteration of chat uh, or of GPT was a GPT two. I think I thought it was still called GPT three back then. Came out, you know, and there was a, a lot of like hype and excitement yeah. around it. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I, like it was very it was obvious to me then that it was coming out. I think what has been interesting about it in the last six weeks is how much more it seems to have penetrated the common person at least in in my like twitter social circle um 
or Substacks that I subscribe to, like um, <clears throat> like how much it's like infiltrated their like thinking and excitement, and now it's you know New York Public Schools has come out and said that they're banning Chat, you know GPT, and so it seems like it's hit another because the technology's um, and and it's going up an exponential curve, right? It's not a linear step function in terms of how good the technology is going to be. So it's it's now hit a much bigger like penetration in society, um, and so I think seeing that happen has been interesting and surprising. Um, I think that in some ways it's the same as it's ever been in terms of education, which is like if people want to cheat, they're going to cheat and find ways to do it. They're either going to like look over the smart kid's like shoulder and copy his answers or they're going to like go to chat GPT and, you know, type in some prompts to get to an answer. And the person that you're really cheating is yourself. And so I think it puts the um, onus on educators and adults and societies to have better pedagogical tools and solutions and reasons for why young people and people in general should invest in their their learning for learning's sake you know because it makes them you know better it, it makes their life more meaningful it means that they can like you know understand the world in, in a more intense way it gives them a skill to you know be more creative and think deeper about who they are and um and so i think it it increases the onus on um, educators and societies to improve. And I always think that it's, it's a real shame when there's just that, that, that um, knee jerk reaction to want to clamp down on something new because it seems scary instead of thinking using like stepping back and using judgment and nuance to think, well, how can we you like modify what we're doing to make this successful and and you know it's funny because that's actually the, the that's actually the biggest um <clears throat> risk in society is that people are no longer able to use judgment like i was at a restaurant in brooklyn on saturday night with a friend and we we wanted to get a table and there were it looked like in the restaurant there were like five empty tables and the hostess was like looking at the um at, you know the screen and trying to like, <laughs> like there are no tables figure out like when people were coming and could we sit down i mean and, and she was like it looked like her brain was about to explode and she looked it must have been like three or it was a, it was a very long like three or four minutes when she was just like um yeah i don't know um maybe can you come back and i'll take down and we were like do you want to take down our phone number and it was almost like she couldn't do any like thinking by herself yeah it was a an over-reliance on the system and um, when the system doesn't give you the direct or, or doesn't make sense then you can no longer think for yourself that that type of would be correct yeah um it's it's yeah and you don't like trust yourself anymore right you're like well i don't want to make a mistake yeah. here and i can't understand exactly what what's go going on into the system so yeah it's um it's a really interesting relationship between machines and and humans in that way uh i was surprised by um one, one of the people uh that that i work with at some point where when we were talking about this uh we kind of let slip at some point saying 
now I finally feel comfortable commenting on great social posts. Because what, what they would do is feed the social post into ChatGPT and ask it for an interesting question. Um, oh, interesting. Because the they were afraid to sound stupid, which stopped them from asking the question in the first place in a public forum. Yeah. Uh, it really made me think because, I mean, on the one hand, there's value in the fact the question is now asked and there's and somebody still thought about, well, not about how to ask the question, but thought about the question they asked. They will have likely read the question and it'll get to a result of a, maybe even a discussion that comes from the question. But the act of thinking about the question, thinking about the problem and figuring out what an interesting question could be for themselves gets lost in that in that transaction. So I'm, I'm not sure where I land in terms of net positive or, or negative in that type yeah. of, um, of interaction. The One of the biggest things that was interesting for me was that the the definition of what learning looks like seems to, or at least in my opinion right now, has shifted somewhat. Uh, just like the calculator changed the way that we think about mathematics, like you still need to understand how to add and subtract and multiply, but most of the most of the learning happens at a conceptual level of understanding is understanding what subtraction is and multiplication and then being able to to use those concepts rather than just blindly doing them over and over because the reality is you can use a calculator um, and I wonder how much of that translates to so many more fields now with with this new technology being present with this tool being there just like we use Google in any of the presentations today and that's totally accepted that you find your stuff on the internet and then evaluate it and use it. This helps you write better, helps you ask questions better, helps you refine your thoughts, iterate your thoughts. Uh, even your, I wonder how much it can influence your, your entire thinking model, which I guess is both good and bad, depending on how, which way it nudges you um, in terms of thinking. But, yeah, like, are people going to think much more consensus, right? Like, is it going to be much harder to both emotionally <clears throat> and to be accepted for having independent thinking or contrarian views or, yeah, you know? Yeah, it'll be very so much. When I use Chat GPT, it's so derivative. You know, so by definition, it's derivative, right? So it, it it is an interesting one. So I I agree. I I have found if you tweak what you ask it, you can specifically make it non-derivative. You can specifically okay. ask it to be to take a contrarian view. You can specifically ask it right. to give you a view that on mainstream and it will actually dig into those things and get you very different answers which the default do doesn't because to your point by definition right. it'll just give you the average but again this is a very interesting discussion on its own right because the the value 
of cre- of asking great questions and great being defined as in a question that leads to a great answer from an artificial intelligence <laughs> is is yeah. very interesting because the quality of your your interaction model with that artificial intelligence directly determines the value you can extract from it. Um, so yeah, it's it's something I've been yeah. thinking about quite a bit. Uh, personally, per- personally, I am very bullish on on just how much this is changing things right now. So probably even more than um, uh, the, than than you would be uh, today. But it's a, it's a very interesting space. So um, as we talk about these various models of um, of learning and, and education, there is a very standardized way of, of testing and quantifying things today it's in the traditional uh, system. How do you think the models of quantification and measurement have to evolve as more and more different ways of learning emerge? Like measuring learning outcomes or, or you mean like the learning outcomes skills and how do you like how how, as we have different paths to learning different modes different models um how do we ensure quality how do we how do we measure what someone has learned in a way that allows a conversation about the level of skill that somebody has built up over time um that still makes sense to Three, two people are on the table, an employer and an employee, for example, when there are 500 different models of learning, how do you have that conversation in a way where people are talking the same language? Oh, I think that's really tough. And I think that's something that, I think that's one of the, I think that's the biggest unanswered question right now that people are trying to figure out. Um, and I think that there's going to be a lot of diversity out there in terms of like what people want to see and how they operate. You know, I think even I was talking to a friend this weekend who's a senior staff engineer at a big technology company. And they were saying to me that they, they were trying to interview for another, for like a, like a series, like a hot series, a startup. And, um, that, that this person didn't get the job. And maybe one of the reasons was that the the company had hired two engineers from her previous employer and they didn't work out uh for whatever reason and so you know maybe there was something in the way that like the engineers at that one tech company like didn't work as well didn't understand the systems or or didn't work as well in the environment with you know engineers who were prim- primarily from a much from like a different big technology company and so it's interesting how even within something that you think would be very black and white or straightforward there are all these nuances in terms of like ways of working and and ways that people and skills that people have that um really matter for teams and so i think that it is becoming it's like almost impossible to generalize because people are now so specialized yeah it is a really it is an inter- it is a difficult question to answer how much do you think the success of alternative education solutions will depend on there being an answer though if you 
if you don't have a way to showcase or to, to have your value as your your learning valued on the other end what how much will that have an impact on the the demand for alternative education well i think the vertical labor marketplaces like where people hire and how they hire will gives a very transparent answer into that sort of thing so in terms of the skills a little bit um so like if you're a freelance graphic designer and you're on upwork like there are you the portfolio that you have and the like rating ratings that you have are, are probably like a big way that you're going to be judged about whether people are going to um hire you and that's true even if, if you're on upwork or if you say you're even like a local like service contractor um and you're like an arborist in wisconsin and you like people are going to go on google and like look at your reviews and you know decide between you and maybe some other competitor on a couple of like criteria and <clears throat> choose yeah. right and so um i think those marketplaces give visibility when people are <clears throat> especially like solo entrepreneurs or micro businesses like marketing themselves almost constantly for jobs um or for for business uh and then when it comes to employability at um at bigger companies or maybe more like white collar jobs you know referrals and networks really matter like being a known com known commodity matters and i think that people also need to like you want want to kind of like find your your home and that home too so it's like a matching on on both sides okay yeah so more of a a marketplace portfolio based evaluation type mechanic over time yeah um, interesting uh so i think we are approximately at the end of the um the questions that i had here so there's one one other question i asked you to to think about for for the end which was what is the biggest question that you have today that you are trying to find an answer to that you would like to find an answer to but you don't have yet yeah yeah so it gave us some thought and i think one of the biggest questions for me as it's and it relates to these ai models language learning models is um like who owns them and where will the economics go so is something like open ai going to be this centralized model that every company that has to pay you know subscriptions to to get access to plug into applications and then are like the you know do they do those does the application layer not have a moat or have like a much like smaller moat around what they're building because they're always reliant on the um person or the organization that owns the like massive well like well-performing um AI model. And so then you're like, whoever gets to use OpenAI's models first will have a first mover advantage and be able to like get all the customers and they will like, you know, not have some, not have a moat around like a business that is worth investing in. I mean, I think we think about that a lot because we're seeing a bunch of content companies in education be like, oh, we've plugged in 
an AI model and to, to be able to create automated content that is personalized to what kids are interested in learning. And so that's going to help them like read or write better. And my question now is like, well, why couldn't like 15 other organizations do the same thing? Because they can just also pay yeah. open AI for the model and like type in some prompts, you know, like what's the proprietary piece yeah. that the application layer has besides like being first to market or, you know, slightly better UX UI. Yeah. yeah, it's a very interesting question indeed. Uh, I'm hoping it's going to go towards the kind of an AWS type model where it becomes commoditized and, and basically becomes part of of the infrastructure layer and everyone gets access to it all the time. That That is what OpenAI was supposed to be about, right? It's about opening the access to everyone instead of having this in the hands of, of the Googles or the... Um, or the Facebooks of, of the world. Um, right. That would have but it's it. owned by Microsoft, right? And, you know, there's definitely people, yeah. some people get access to it faster than others. So it's it's definitely going to be an interesting one to see how close to their original mission they end up at. And, and if they don't, how quickly the, the open source model might look at. Like, if you look yeah. at what happened with MidJourney, that was very interesting, right? MidJourney, proprietary, but then stable diffusion, came out initially nowhere near as good, but very quickly caught up. And now you have stable diffusion models that were trained on great mid-journey images, which actually produce very, very high quality images as well. So yeah, it's a very new, very interesting space. Good question. Um, I wish yes. I had the answer as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully by the end of uh, three months or so, we'll yes. our notes and see if we got our thoughts. Exactly. So, um, with all of these questions, <laughs> were you able to spot the chat GPT question? Was it the assessment one? It was the question of if you think alternative education will eventually take over the entire education system or live alongside it. Okay, cool. <laughs> Obviously, I'm there you go. It. To, to my favorites, uh, we, I asked it to generate a few questions and I took the one that I thought was most interesting. So obviously that, that kind of comes with it, but yeah. Uh, so there was so, some curation there. Oh, th there was. Curation. Uh, and it was, it was also prompt-based, right? So I fed it your right. article. I then very specifically asked it to create a thoughtful but divisive question. Ooh. Uh, yeah. So and this is again where like the prompt makes a very big difference uh, in terms of yeah. the, the results that you get back. Wow. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for, for taking the time. I really enjoyed it um, in terms yeah. of just having a chat in this way. How was it for you the as well for the first time this long in VR, I guess? Yeah, no, it was great. Uh, it's a new medium. And I, as I said, I love learning. And so uh, <laughs> I, it's also thrilling to like kind of learn a new skill. And, and as we're doing this, I'm, I, I, it has prompted me to think, well, maybe I should be using this in different ways, or I wonder if we can do, you know, maybe we should have our avalanche like team meetings in VR. It's uh, if you're investing in VR, might as well spend a decent amount yeah. of time in it. <laughs> yeah, true. I think cool. that's a really good point. Thanks for, for asking me and the prompt. And this has been wonderful. Same. Thank you very much and have a great day then. <laughs> Thanks. You too. Bye, Josh. Bye. The way we learn and the way we work is changing rapidly. Artificial intelligence is automating ever more tasks around us, putting pressure on all of us to rescale 
and upscale at accelerated rates while dealing with a level of unprecedented information overload. The education system, built for an age of information scarcity and around a broadcast model of teachers and learners, is simply no longer fit for purpose. But what can be put in its place? I'm your host, Joshua Vöhler, CEO at Mindstone, and I hope today's conversation shed light on at least some of the problems we're facing. If you thought today's conversation was interesting, I invite you to subscribe to our podcast by searching for hashtag AskWhy in your favorite podcast app, or follow us on YouTube or TikTok and catch the video feed of these conversations, which are happening in VR.